0: You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. Today I'm excited to be speaking with Almisha Campbell, the current chair of the board of directors for Autumn. Almisha is a trailblazer in the technology transfer field and a true asset to the industry as a seasoned leader and a champion of equity, diversity, and inclusion. She currently serves as the assistant vice president for research and economic development at Jackson State University where she has built a thriving technology transfer office from the ground up. Her unwavering commitment to innovation and entrepreneurship, especially among underrepresented populations, has earned her recognition and accolades from numerous organizations. Welcome, Almisha, and congratulations on officially having been handed the gavel and becoming the board chair of Autumn. Thank you, Lisa.
1: I am grateful for this opportunity
0: and thank you so much for having me here today. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. And how does it feel to be making history as the first Black person and HBCU graduate to hold this position?
1: <laughs> it's it's actually an interesting time, an interesting moment. And I'm trying to, you know, take it all in. But at the same time, you know, I am honored to be elected by the board to serve you know, as chair of autumn. Of course, this is a great honor to be voted by uh, my, my peers, you know, in the field of tech transfer and I want to say that I do not take this honor lightly at all. Um, and so more than being just the first Black person and the first woman an HBCU to hold this position, I want my goal to be more focused on to ensure equity, inclusion, diversity, and access for all people who are often underrepresented in these spaces and others. So it's not enough for me to be the first. Um, so we got to ensure that the opportunities are not one-off and that now that the door is open, that we ensure that it stays open for other people—not just people who look like me, but people with disabilities, people from different sexual orientation, people from different geographic region, whatever those differences are—but most particularly uh, from diverse background and experiences, and also people with diverse perspectives. Because one thing I always tell people: I do not like to be in a room and everybody's yes, yes, yes. I want people to challenge me. I want people to make sure that they're heard and that despite their differences in their opinion and experiences that they matter and they do have something to add to the conversation.
0: Well, I think that was very, very well said. And thank you for that. And I want to dig a little bit into your early days at Jackson State University, going from there to now serving as the chair of Autumn. Can you take us a little bit on your journey through your professional growth and share how mentorship and support has played a role along the way? Oh, wow. This is an awesome question. Um, I've been at Jackson State for
1: 14 years, and every time I say that I'm going, wow, I didn't intend to stay here that long. But like my first career, I stayed there for 10 years. It was only my intention to be there a year. But nevertheless, here I am. When I arrived in Jackson State University 14 years ago, I came as an editorial associate. And I often tell people I was thrown into tech trans. I had no idea what the field was all about. I came in as an editorial associate, so work on all the the annual reports and the magazines for for the division as well as one of their journal articles. And then Jackson State became a chartered member of the National Academy of Inventors. So I was tasked, I love to plan things. Um, You may not know that about me, but I have a great reputation of planning big conferences and stuff like that. And yes, I, I'm I'm very good with, with planning stuff. And so I planned the event to induct our members of the National Academy of Inventors in the local chapter. And the midst of that, my president was here at the time and my former VP, he said, oh, we just hired someone to be the intellectual property manager. And the staff looked around the room like, what? When did this happen? And if he did that, we should have included this person while we launched um, the National Academy of Inventors chapter on our campus. Needless to say, those conversations went on for two days and figured out that I was the person that was coming on board, even though I was already on board, that I was the person doing Tech trust. I immediately did a lot of Google searches trying to figure out what this is and what does it mean for me. But if you know me, you'll know I've never backed down from an opportunity to learn something new. I cons- I, I, I said myself is you know, a constant learner, a lifelong learner, and I'm always willing to learn something. I may not fully understand all of it, but I'm going to try. And so when that occurred, I started, you know, asking the right questions. And I remember that I had met Tanaga Booza previously at um, White House Initiative at HBC's annual conference in Washington, D.C., maybe a month before, and I reached out to her and I said, hey, I met you. You know, I, I remember that you're the director for tech transfer at Florida a and University. And I called and said, can I shadow you for a couple of days? And she graciously said yes. So two weeks later, I was in Tallahassee, Florida, a place that I, I know very well, because that's where I first um, lived when I came to the U.S., and so I shadowed Tanaga for a whole week and I watched how she operated her office. I watched her, her office at the time, she had three person office, but she also had a student um, um, from the pharmacy school that was working and she was training that student to write patent application, et cetera. And then she said to me, you know what? Autumn is having an essentials course in Portland, Oregon. And this was like three days after I had met with her and somehow because she was involved with Autumn, she was able to get me to that course. And needless to say, that's where I met um, the Charlie Shaws and others that were in my essentials course. That I was able, you know, to start learning really what tech transfer is. But at least I would say this that, and and I, I like to be honest about my experiences and you know how I felt in those moments. And I remember as we went through, I think it was a valuation course. Marketing was easy because I have a marketing degree and background, done that for many years. But when I got to valuation, it was one of those things that stumped me. And it, and it was a bit confusing at first. And I raised my hand and Christopher Noble was the person at that moment. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't get it. And I feel a little bit, you know... Um, less than in this room with all these PhDs. And at the time I didn't have my PhD, I should say. And I didn't come from a STEM background, marketing, mass communication, and my PhD is in public policy and administration now. And Kristen Noble said something to me that I, I will never forget how he made me feel. And I, he he made me feel like I belonged and he also made me feel that my marketing degree and my mass communication degree were the things that would help me to have longevity in the field because I'm able to communicate, I'm able to network very good, and I'm able to market the programs and myself and the resources that we have on our campus. And I will tell you, I credit buza with getting me started, but I also credit um, Christopher Noble for helping me to stay in the field because when I thought that this was not for me, that conversation I keep revisiting every time I feel like this, I haven't learned something well enough. He reminded me that how I can take what I have, my skill set, and operate within my gift to do what the best that I can do. And what I can't do, someone else would have to do that, right? And so those are the things that I tell people. And then I will also credit the e-groups and if you have not been posting in the e-groups and asking questions please do because that's a place that I lived in for several years. I was always in the e-groups. I looked I was too afraid to ask questions because I didn't want to seem like I was asking very basic questions that I should know, but I watched the responses and I I printed off some of them that I needed to review and I put them in a binder and I would highlight and go through and I start developing my policy and processes, you know, to align with what I was seeing as best practices from some of those institutions. Um, I also got, got to credit my current VPR, Dr. Joseph Whitaker. When he came to Jackson State in 2017, one of the things he said to us in our individual meetings, and I know for myself, is that I want to make sure that I remove all barriers to your success. And I want to leave you better than I met you. And since that time, every time I've said, oh, this person called me to do a talk or they call me to do something and I don't know if I want to do it or I don't know if I can. He was the person who said, no, this is your moment. This is your time. And pushed me to do certain things because sometimes I didn't think that I belong in that space. And so I have to credit him and I have to credit um, the role of these people in my life and uh, I also want to talk, uh, you know, credit my president a little bit too, because we don't often talk about our presidents and because we are so far removed in our hierarchy, but I'm I'm fortunate that I'm at a small institution where I have a relationship with my president and that my president was able to come to Autumn annual meeting, you know, to really look and say, I am proud of you. I'm here to support you. And that for me meant a, real, a big deal to see that he came to support me and I think that he understand what I'm trying to do at Jackson State in terms of tech transfer, in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship and why we created these opportunities for our students on the campus. So a huge deal for me. And so those four people, when it comes
0: to my professional career here at Jackson State and in the field of tech transfer, just want to credit them for that. Yeah, that's an amazing story and what an amazing journey. And I will say, Almisha, one of the things that has been just so special for me about doing this podcast is just the collaborative, supportive community that Autumn and Autumn members are. And you, I think, described that very eloquently. You know, that's been my experience doing this podcast, obviously yours and, and I'm sure many others as well. So Almisha, I wanted to ask you, could you tell us how your experiences as an HBCU administrator and advocate shaped your views on diversity and inclusivity in tech transfer, as well as the commercialization field?
1: Absolutely, Lisa. I, and I just, let, let me just go back and say, I spent 10 years in corporate. So coming to the HBCU, I often was asked the question, what the the differences between those two? And I often said metrics, you know, um, and benchmarks in terms of how much money you have to bring in by the end of a fiscal year versus at a university where you don't really have those. In tech transfer, we do have some metrics that we follow based on how our university is set up. I I find that most universities are diverse. Like We have students and faculty from all walks of life and all different experiences. And we have first-generation college students like myself and and legacy students whose ties go back as far as Several generations of attending a particular university, but I also think that what some of us lack is diversity and inclusion in the leadership and the leadership at various levels. Not, not I'm not just saying the president, but I'm looking at all the different levels. Your directors, your your um, all the people who who contribute to the decision making process that are oftentimes not that diverse, and so. The, the the lack of diversity within those areas and not having those diverse voices sometimes stifle our opportunity to do a better job um at Jackson State um like i said we we are diverse in that but when you look around with how much women are leading you know departments and how much women you know are in leadership level our our leadership right now and i got to thank our president for that has a lot of women on our cabinet there's also a lot of women in our administrative council that I'm in, but at some universities, you don't see that. You don't see people in there making those decisions, right? And so oftentimes the decision we make affect the people that we're making the decision for, right? And have unintended consequences because we didn't consider where they sit within those decision-making processes. And so it shaped my view in for me to think about um, what can I do in the space that I'm in? And and I'm not talking about just the color of my skin, because, yes, you can see that. That's visual. But how many people know that I have a great grandmother who's a white lady? How many people know that I'm a descendant of Thomas Warner? How many people know, you know, different things about me that are not surface level? And my coming from a community that's very diverse. You know, when you come into my community, there's no differences between when you see the locals. Oftentimes you may think that's a tourist, but that's a local. You know, they just don't look like me, but they are locals and they grew up within our community. So we've always had, I've always lived among diverse people. And when I tell you growing up in a large family, I'll spare you by telling you how much siblings I have, but I have a lot. (laughs) And we are all different in terms of our different experiences and what we do. And like I said, I was the only one who decided to come to college. And so our experiences are so vastly different and the way we have our conversation. But you know what's there? the respect,
0: the respect. Yeah, you
1: know, you have to have respect for people. And then how do you, if you want to help, how do you stand in solid, solidarity for others, no matter what that is. So oftentimes when I see the elderly people, I tell people I, I have my two greatest um, groups of people that I get along with the best are the children. I've always, I always have a group of children around me and I always get along with the elderly. You know, I love them to death. They're the people that I spend most of my time being around um, because they've lived so many, so many things they've gone through and they have so many experiences that they can share with me. And despite the fact that I did not experience them, I can understand and I can have conversation about how do I do this now that we're in, you know, this era. And I love having those conversations. And so those things shape me a bit to think more about diversity, inclusion, but also think about access. Are we allowing the, do we have access? How easy it is for these people to, to be a part of a conversation. How easy it is for people with disabilities to enter a room and be able to hear them talk. Uh, Do we put them in a corner and they're not a part of the conversation? So those are the things sometimes in my role as an administrator, but also my role as a person, as a human being who loves people and who consider myself a servant leader. Those are the things I ask myself. Um, I'm not going to truly understand everybody, but if I have respect and if I stand in solidarity for, for them, then I feel like I'm doing something to help the process.
0: I wanted to switch gears a little bit, Almisha, and ask you about some of the programs and initiatives that you have going on there at Jackson State University. You have things like the JSU iCorp site and the Engaging Researchers and in Innovations and in Commercialization at HBCU's Pre Accelerator. Can you tell us a little bit how those programs and initiatives have contributed to fostering innovation and entrepreneurship?
1: Um, Lisa, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'll go back and say in um, 2015, I participated as an entrepreneur lead in NSF ICO national. And one of the things that I realized is that if we had those opportunities on my campus, how many of us would be innovators and entrepreneurs? Um, how many, and I also think of it from a tech transfer, like how many disclosure would I be able to get if once people have done these customer discovery? And so when we came back in 2015, um, the group of us who went, we start thinking about, you know, writing this proposal to have the ICO site on the campus. Um, when I developed um, the Enrich program in partnership with University of Kentucky and Accelerate Health, The goal was to look at how we can design a program that would impact equity, diversity, inclusion, innovations and train faculty and students from HBCUs to think critically about the commercial potential of new healthcare innovations. Um, So, you know, we would hear people say, oh, HBCUs are not doing this, or they don't have enough of that. But how many of us really said, we're gonna come in and from the grassroots level, build programs to support it. Um, I will tell people all the time, I get questions about, send me some founders, some Black founders, and I'm like, are you helping me cultivate them? Because I have to have the, the support on my campus to build this program. So I was fortunate to have those support to start the Enrich program, and I'm very passionate you know, about the program and what it's doing because it's allowing people of all walks of life to access you know, the innovation space and, you know, and to participate in it in a way that they can contribute meaningfully and to understand the role of innovation, entrepreneurship and tech transfer in the R&D space. Because a lot of times they're thinking, you know, traditionally they get a grant, they do the research, they send, a you know, they send the um A report to the funding agency and they're done, but never think about, you know, the lab to market processes and all of that. And that's changing. And so when this program was created, the idea was not so much just for Jackson State, because I never want to create anything just for Jackson State, because it means I'm only touching a small population of people, but I can broaden that by opening it up to all HBCs. And so that's what was we did with the ENRICH program. And so the ENRICH program also forms as a feeder into the NSF ICO program. Like I said, we've operated since 2016 and what we've seen is a shift in innovation and entrepreneurship on the campus. We've seen faculty even disclose more an unintended outcome when we initially started. We didn't even think about tech transfer and more patents, copyright, trademark. We were just thinking about infusing that entrepreneurial mindset in our faculty and student. But really that's helped grew our tech transfer operation where we now have more quality disclosures. We now have, you know, Faculty in the process want to understand how to do pattern landscape searches. They want to do some more things, tries to understand where we stand on on that role. And I think when you also look at how we've been able to leverage the I-Corps, and this is my pride because looking at doing I-Corps and then figuring out how do we find a space where they can operate and do all these things and collaborate and develop the Center for Innovation, Entrepreneurship, and Economic Development. But beyond that, developing the Innovation Fellows Program where I would coach 10 students, that was the plan, and teach them entrepreneurship, teach them technology transfer, commercialization, but actually help them to be change agents on the campus for innovation. That went beyond 10 students. And now I think I have 30 students. <laughs> so um, it has been growing because I've never had to market for the program in it market itself because the student tells another That's student impressive. they recommend. But the good thing about it is that as the student graduate from Jackson State University, they're still employed by me. Meaning they still support me, all the back end tools and resources that they develop while they were innovation fellows, they continue maintaining them, whether it's the back end of the website, whether it's the app, they continue maintaining them. So I have forever um, employees that I don't have to pay. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Yes. And then I spinned off that into the Young Innovators Program, which is for the K-12, because as the K-12 students came to our campus in the summertime for the bridge and different things, there were always a gap where they didn't really know what to do in the program. So I volunteered to take those periods of time and form a whole program for mainly high school and middle school and whoever else need to come, but they go through the same processes as the the college student. They learn all of this stuff from esports to VR to you know entrepreneurship, and then we do challenges with them, and they leave the center with something tangible that they've created. Um And so those things for me, even more than me being associate VP for research, these are the things that bring me bring me joy because it it, it do it, it it they have outcomes that you see from years to come. But also one of the things I did recently was partner with Erdic Works, which is the tech transfer of the Army Corps of Engineers, Engineering Research and Development Center in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and create a fellowship program. So we get a student each semester that would be a tech transfer fellow. They would would intern in their office down in Vicksburg. They get to work with Army Corps of Engineers, researchers in their labs, and understand tech transfer, help them um, do patent landscape searches and all of that. So, but they also intern in my office. So they understand both the federal side of doing tech transfer and the university side. And ideally, hopefully one day, one of those fellows would end up being the person in my seat as the director of transfer. So I can take that hat off and continue, you know, doing my work. So these are some of the things that we had to do, but more so, I would add, when the community realized what we were doing and they wanted to participate in some of these programs, we allowed them to. They just couldn't get the same benefit for the ones that are federally funded. So we we uh, wrote a grant to um, the SBA, to the Office of Women's Business Ownership and got the Women Business Center on, on the campus. So in that space, I'm also doing the tech transfer side for the community people who need support because there's not you know, tech transfer arm in the community to support them. So we were able to do that through the Women Business Center, while separating it from the services that are offered to the faculty and students on JSU campus. Long answer, but that's a piece that I'm I'm passionate about and love growing that ecosystem so that I can have those founders that I can send on to other, you know, competitions and different things that really
0: shows the impact and um, in this in this space. Now, Misha, uh, given all that. Can you share some best practices for other organizations that might be looking to establish similar initiatives and programs to support innovation and entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, um, I, I would often say do your customer discovery. Because even on my own campus, even though I may think that I know the people because I work so closely, faculty and student, I didn't just create the program like that. I did my customer's discovery. I talked to them. I, I figured out what their pain points were, you know, some of the things that needed to, to be a part of this program so that I'm creating a program for them and not a program by me. Um, and I think that when you talk to people that it should help. And And when you get input from these type of communities for programming like this, they buy into it. And that helps build trust, Um, especially trust in a community that you don't traditionally operate in. So if you're coming into a community that you're unfamiliar with, you have to learn to build that trust. And that trust only comes from you having those conversations with them. You find out what their needs are. You may think you know, but you'll find out, no, that's not what the issue is. Here's another issue. So you have to have those conversations and I would often tell people, allow them to be a part of decision making. You know, you're, you're creating something that affects them and their livelihood. So allow them to be a part of some forms of the, the decision making process and be consistent. You know, my students would say, hey, I don't want to participate in this program that this person brought on campus, because what we find is they would start a program and then three months down the road by next semester, the program is no longer there. And so we would waste the whole semester and there's no continuity. So there must be intentionality. There must be consistency. And you also have to have some level of cultural competency, depending on where you're going and what you're trying to do, because we find sometimes that the languages used, you know, um, oftentimes the same people don't use it. For example, I'm accustomed to say the word SBI, SBI and STT. And recently I've heard federal, you know, program officers say SIBA and sitter, and I'm, it took me a minute to go, oh, they're <laughs> so talking. about that? Yeah, because we're so good in our fields of using these terminologies that most of the people that we are trying to get into the field don't speak that type of language. So we have to have that cultural competency to understand that. But also one thing I would say that when you're building programs, not only do you build it from the ground up, meaning talking to people at the bottom level, but you also have to talk to the people at the top and find a meeting of the minds between those two. Because if you have buying. From the people you're trying to impact, and the, the, the buying from the leadership level, in some ways, you can create a program that would be successful for years to come. And always think about a sustainability plan, because when when I co-created the Center for Innovation, my my first thing was. I don't want to put in all this effort, all my weekends, all my late nights. And then if I leave the university, or if the university say I don't need Almisha anymore, then this center just sits here and nothing happens. So how do I create that sustainability plan? So the the corporate partnership, the research grants, plus empowering the students to be the leaders. The students are leading their own programming. I don't have to be in the center 24-7. It's led by the students. And so that's one of the ways that um, I thought about it is that I didn't want it to be about me. I don't ever want anything I do about me. I want it to be about the people I'm trying to impact.
0: Alisha, you have so much to be proud of. As you mentioned before, you're a first generation college graduate and you're also a, a mother of two. How have these experiences shaped the way you approach leadership and mentorship within your professional community?
1: I just throw the spaghetti at the wall and <laughs> hope it's <thick>. just, <laughs> it sticks.
0: Does that work? Because I might do that after this podcast.
1: <laughs> no, it, it's just I've I've always uh, you know growing up in 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 the British Caribbean island of Saint Kitts and Nevis. So one thing that my my mom and my grandmother has always taught me is I always have to work. You know, it doesn't matter whether it was and we have a colloquial language, uh, you know, and if I say it in my colloquial language, they work work at night, meaning if you didn't get a job done today between eight and five, my grandmother would wake you up in the middle of the night and send you outside to do that job. Either way, her, t- her thing was the job has to get done. So I've always had this, um, you know, innate way of knowing that I have to do my job no matter what, it was, and that I always have to let my work speak for itself. Because if I don't, then it means that I didn't do a good job of trying to make it a good job. And then my, my mom and my grandmother were two non-nonsense strong women. No nonsense, no questions asked, just do what I say and get it done and They instilled those things in me from a very young age, good work ethics and supported my growth and facilitated every aspect of my life. From the time I was trying to be a cheerleader to a dancer to a a debater, whatever I tried to do in my life growing up. And I've done a lot. (laughs) My parent, my grandmother and my um, and you hear me say that because I didn't grow up with a father figure person in my life. Um, I knew my dad very well, um, but we didn't have that relationship. And that was, you know, I'm not going to go into details with that, but I love my dad to death. Um, But there were strong people in my life that often tell me, you know, the way they gave to me made me know that I have to give back. It wasn't anyone who said, Almisha, you have to give back. I remember when we didn't have. I remember when my mom would say, oh, you need this clothes to go this way. and She would take one of her dresses, cut it out and make a dress for me to do something that I needed to. Because I was always doing something. I always had my mom running about what I needed to do. And so she did that. And it always taught me that whenever I get the opportunity to help someone, I'm going to help someone And so I've always done that. I've done that a lot with the youth um, from my church, you know, leading youth groups for over 12 years to on the campus um, and just doing those things. But then my daughters also keep me grounded. Um, They're 16 and 12. And we have a great relationship where we talk about anything. And if they ask me a question, no matter how young they were, my only job was to always tell them the truth. And then I had to deal with it afterwards by their feedback. And so when when they ever get this, when they get to see me in the spaces like um, last year when I two years ago, when I was a keynote the, the independence keynote speaker for the prime minister of St. and Nevis, my daughters watched it, you know, virtually. And when I got home, they were like, whoa, mommy, you sounded so different. I'm so proud of you. Wow. Oh, that's we awesome. didn't, you know, and when you hear that, you go, yes, that's that's an incredible feeling that your kids, you know, understand what you're doing and they understand the sacrifices I'm making uh, for them. And I, and I tell them everything I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And they fully support.
0: And they're proud of you, which they should be.
1: They're proud of me. And because they know that I don't accept them being mediocre, you know? Um, And I just said this quickly, but my daughter, the oldest one came home. She was 12 years old and she came home and I said, when are you going to do your, your assignment that's due in two days? And she said, Oh, I'll just wait till tomorrow. And I said to her, why don't you do it now? She said, well, mommy, I saw some of the kids, they brought in their stuff early and eh, it wasn't that good. So it's going to be easy for me to do it. And I said to them, why do you want to be mediocre when you can be great? You have all the tools and resources, you know, that you can use to really do a great project that you you're not doing it just for a grade, but you're doing this project because you want to see how far." you know, and how good you can do these things so you can learn more on what you already know. So that's how I I have that. And I just feel a sense of duty to self and to my family to always give back, to give back to other people and to operate within my gift because I don't like, I can't sing. And if you ever hear me singing, just move out of the way because it's (laughs) going to be terrible. Um, But my kids are beautiful singers. And so I've learned to operate in my gift and my gift is always be a you know, the gift of helping others. And that's what
0: I, I want to continue doing. Well, we're so grateful for your gift. And I think another one of your gifts, and it's come across through this conversation we've had so far is you're truly passionate about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, and now as the chair of Autumn, how do you plan on continuing to build upon the organization's commitment to ED&I uh, to ensure that all members feel valued and included?
1: That's a good question, as you know, one of our pillars is include, and we have we have a board in our strategic plan we have dedicated to ensure that we have equity diversity inclusion you know across um the whole spectrum of what we do as Adam. We, we have to understand that we have different people in our organization with different backgrounds, different experiences, different voices. And we are, to, we, we are to let them speak and we are to hear from them what they have to say about our organization. And one of the things I want to make sure I do as chair of Adam is to make sure I listen. Make sure I'm available when people want to talk about their feedback, give their feedback, and they want to talk about anything they see with the leadership of Autumn or the direction of Autumn, I'm willing to listen because I think that's the only way we can grow. Um, I'm fortunate that we were able to have a, a listening session with um, the international community at the annual meeting. And we were able to listen to, you know, their feedback about how Autumn can support them, but what Autumn is also doing in the EDI, in the EDI space. Um, so I, I, my plan is to continue supporting that. My my plan also, Lisa, with you as the incoming chair, as the chair of, of the EDI committee to working closely with you and Najis to make sure that you have the resources that you need to do a great job and, and that, EDI is not just a standalone effort, but it is um, woven throughout everything we do within the organization. So no matter what we do, we shouldn't be able to to see EDI standing out as a, a, a sewer thumb. It should be you know, woven throughout. And, and that's something that I hope
0: I'll be able to help um, in this year. Yeah. And I know Nargis and I are really excited to be working with you and and that brings me to ask you, um, Elmisha, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges are that are facing industry in terms of promoting diversity, inclusivity, and how is we as a community can work to address them better?
1: That's a good question. I think one of the challenges for industry, sometimes they want to help, but they're not too sure how to help. And I think oftentimes they're not sure who at I- Let's say, for example, they want to reach out to historically black colleges and universities. They may go to a website and pick someone and they may not necessarily pick the right person to communicate these things with. Right. And so in in, in laying out those plans and in moving forward, some, there's some mis, missteps with that. Um, I think that's a challenge for them because they really do want to help. I've seen, you know, a lot of companies reach out and I, I would talk about HP, for example, that with the HBCU, um, tech conference, what they did was bring different people represented. They started out with the CIOs because that's where they, the tech, and brought them together to have these conversation. But when the CIOs realized what was happening, they bring other people on board like myself to help shape the way the conference should look because these are the needs of our community. These are the needs of our students and faculty. And they were able to build a successful conference that's in its, um, about to go into its third year that I'm proud to be a part of that that's one of the challenges and and i think um the other piece maybe for for the rest of us in the space what we can do is just talk to people talk when we see people at the annual meetings and regionals or wherever we are we after we do a good job of having badges i mean last time i had 20 things you know on my back <laughs> yeah, they're pretty colorful yeah yes <laughs> i wanted to represent everything but one of the things i did um last year and this year specifically, was to look for those batches that says new member. I sought out those specifically because I wanted to make sure they felt a sense of belonging and that you no know, matter who they are, it doesn't matter, you know, which school they come from, no matter when, whether they have a large office or a small office, that someone walks up to them. I think it means a lot that someone walks up to them and say, hi, hey, how are you doing? You know, are you sitting with someone for lunch and sit next to someone? Because we, we know who we are as a people. We often want to gravitate toward the people we know we want to sit and we want to kick and catch up. But those people sometimes want to build a community. And so we have to be intentional about how we reach out to them and engage them and make them feel a sense of belonging in our community as well.
0: So, Almisha is the new chair of Autumn, I'm sure you have a lot of exciting things in store for the organization. Can you give our listeners a sneak peek into some of the strategic initiatives that you and the rest of the Autumn board will be focusing on in the coming year?
1: Uh, yes, yes. Um, um, for those that were able to stay um, for the closing session on um, the annual meeting would hear some of it because, you know, I wanted to make sure in that speech that I talk about the things that were, you know, not just important to me because th- this is not my organization and this is not about me but this is about what we said we're going to do as an organization in our strategic plan. And what are some of the strategic initiatives that we can do to ensure that we're meeting um, what we said in our strategic plan? So for me, there were four key things. There are others, but the four key things I'm going to mention that I'm going to focus on is going to be international engagement. Um, Oftentimes, you know, people may forget that I'm also international. And so I wanna make sure that we focus on that. There's a lot of opportunities in that space that we don't necessarily tap into. And I'm I'm happy that we had the international listening session and we were able to learn a lot. Um, Even when I look at, let's say the Caribbean region and what's happening there and the conversations I've had with some of the ministers of government in this space, they, they do a lot in the creative economy but they're hidden upon a wall about where the next steps are. And I think that's something that Autumn can look at about doing training in some of these regions and including some of those areas that are traditionally not included in the tech transfer space, but bringing them a part of it because they're now having those conversations. They're now engaging a lot of tech and and, and the governments are putting a lot of money in, into these fields, but the tech transfer piece is not built up where it needs to be. So, that's something um, I wanna focus on. I also wanna focus on industry engagement. Uh, we do have industrial part of Autumn a lot of times. Uh, we may see them at the annual meeting and different meetings with their boots out, but we need to figure out how best for we could to engage them. So there's a win-win on both sides, a win for Autumn and a win for them. And so they feel a part of the community. Um, so having listening sessions with that community to me would be very important. Um, of course, we want to do the tech transfer direct and VPR symposium. Um, hopefully we could get that done in collaboration with APLU. One of the things I'll say is so important that our VPIs support the tech transfer directors, especially those at universities, because the R and D space is something that they they need us and we also need them to get our jobs done. And because I've gone through four VPRs in my career, I know sometimes the focus shifts and the understanding and, you know, what tech transfer is and how it, you know, the value of it in the R&D space is not oftentimes understood. And so bringing these two groups together um, for us to have those open conversations and especially with the NSF tip Directorate, the new solicitations that are out with the chips and signs, the conversation needs to happen and it needs to happen now. And so that's something, you know, we're going to focus on this year to ensure that we can get that done. Um, of course, we talk about EDI. So definitely want to implement dedicated inclusion programming, you know, this year and I know people look at me and they think, "Oh, it's all she's gonna do is EDI." But no, it's not about that. It's about you know everything that an organization we said that we're gonna do in our in our pillows that we're making sure that we're dedicated to those and we're getting it done. So from the water cooler sessions to the training, to the emerging research institutions, reinvigorating that and make sure that we are, you know, um, including everybody. When you look at the space of the emerging research institutions, their research dollars have increased exponentially. You know, um, Howard University just got a $60 million. You know, you, you look at the different money that are out there, um, in this space and you have to sit back and say, okay, it's time for us to train more people, you know, in this space. And and that's something that I want to focus on. But there's some other exciting stuff that that we have in the pipeline with the board working on. And we we're fortunate, you know, that we have Steve Sasulka as the CEO because he's very passionate about tech transfer and about Autumn succeeding. I, I also want to say this, um, and I said this to Steve Sasulker. Um, Having been to a meeting in WIPO twice last October and and this past February, and hearing Director General Tang talk about the importance of the relationship with Autumn and what they can do but cannot do it without the support of Autumn makes me feel proud to be a part of this organization. And it's only because of our volunteers, our staff you know, and people like Steve that we have at the helm that make sure that Autumn has a great reputation globally.
0: Well, Amisha, I can't thank you enough for taking all this time today to join us on the podcast. Your story and experiences are truly inspiring, and I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to learn from you and hear your perspectives on the important topics of diversity, mentorship, and leadership Your passion for creating a more inclusive and equitable future for the technology transfer community is absolutely inspiring. And I can't wait. And I'm so excited to see all that you accomplish in your role as the board chair of Autumn.
1: Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for having me today.
0: Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM.com or visit us online at autm.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro?
1: Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.